written around 500 BC, and he uses this man to bring God's message to God's people. It's really trying to light a fire under God's people to wake them up from their spiritual discouragement. They've been dogged with hard times, dogged with discouragement. They've been they need to get away from sort of their wrong-headed ways and their self-damaging ways, their self-obsessed ways, their self-destructive ways, and get back to God, get back to living His way versus their own. And it's all about getting back on track again spiritually. More specifically, as we drill down on uh, chapter 12 that Scott read for us, the title for today's message uh, is this, Grace and Mercy Received from the Pierced One. Grace and Mercy Received from the Pierced One. And the idea behind this title is, is this. Basically, somebody, imagine this idea. You, I'm sure you've done this. You take the hit for someone else. You take the hit for somebody else. Self-sacrifice in a nutshell. Parents, you do this all the time. You are experts in what it is to take the hit for your kids. Uh, for example, mom and dad, you sacrifice your mom, money for your kids. You sacrifice your personal health and fitness for your kids. You sacrifice, uh, you know, Christmas, you go without the gifts or the fancy gifts. You know, you get socks and underwear versus, you know, the new computer. Why? You do it out of love for your kids so that your kids can get the bigger Christmas gift. Parents understand very clearly what it is to take the hit for others that you love. Or a good boss. Let's imagine you have a, let's assume you have a good boss. Uh, and, uh, you know, imagine a good boss is a good boss because he or she is willing to take the hit for their employees. Uh, he or she says no to the Christmas bonus. Why? So that the employees can get a bigger, uh, better, decent-sized Christmas bonus or Christmas gift. The boss gets nothing. Why? Again, the boss is taking the hit for others in and around him or her. And this, this idea of taking the hit for others, uh, we see this spoken about in our passage very prophetically. And I would argue that one of the most beautiful things in the universe is when you see self-sacrifice in a deep way. Self-sacrificial action is one of the most beautiful things to ever witness, uh, period. And we're going to see this in our passage, this beautiful aspect of self-sacrifice again today. Let's get into chapter 12 here because my goal and our goal is to be done by 1130 today. Uh, what happens in this chapter 12 of Zechariah? Well, he begins this message from God to God's people by reminding them that this message from God in chapter 12 is a declaration uh, from God. Uh, these words from God here, uh, Zechariah says, can be trusted and believed. Why? Why should they listen to what he is saying? It's because, well, these words come from God, and this is, this is the God who formed the heavens. He stretched out the heavens. He is, this is the one, the God who founded the earth on which we live. This is the God who put the spirit of man within him, and that is therefore why we should all listen back then and today. And it's sort of like Zechariah. He's reminding them, he's reminding us today, saying, don't forget. Don't forget about God. Don't forget that everything we see is, is only here because of God's creative initiative and His great power. The only reason that you exist is to glorify God. You're actually here for God. It's for Him. It's not about you. It's about Him. You know, It's all about enjoying a relationship with God forever. So everything you have in your possession today, so think of all the Christmas gifts. You, hopefully you received something at Christmas this year. Uh, but in addition to your Christmas gifts that you received, your job, your, your health, your family, your pulse, your own spirit, all of these things are in your life only because of God's creative initiative. 
He is your maker. He is the one through from which you are sourced. Then Zechariah transitions to uh, speaking about that to now speaking about Jerusalem. And Jerusalem uh, is really the capital of Israel, ancient Israel. It is there today and is seen as when God mentions Jerusalem, he is mentioning and thinking of his people, the faithful people of God who trust in him. And Zechariah, you may have noticed this as Scott was reading it, he relates Jerusalem to being like actually four different word pictures. And I love word pictures because then it drills at home because I'm, I think, through images very much. And he, first of all, he says Jerusalem is like a cup. So imagine a cup much more ornate than this one. But Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, God's people are like a cup of staggering. That when the opposing nations uh, try to do battle against God, well, they are then drinking this intoxicating liquid uh, in this cup that is what Jerusalem is like, and they drink the cup. Well, then, because it's, it's alcohol, they're staggering around like a drunkard. And if your enemy is intoxicated, okay, when you do battle against them, how well will you do? You will not fight well, so therefore God's people, the insinuation is, they will obliterate you. That's the first word picture. Second word picture that Zechariah relates God's people to in Jerusalem being like is that of a heavy stone. I think there's a picture on the screen of a guy, I think this is the world's strongest man competition, and they apparently lift rocks, you know, so that's what Jerusalem is like, so that's the word picture. And it's like a, a heavy stone that when enemies, uh, God's enemies try to lift up Jerusalem, the heavy stone, um, they're only going to break their backs, they're going to hurt themselves, it's not going to go well for them, it's going to come back onto them. And then thirdly, and fourthly, Zechariah then says Jerusalem is like a red-hot cooking pot in the middle of, of dry kindling, or like a flaming torch in the midst of dry sheaves of wheat and barley. That's what God's people are like. So what happens with the, the red-hot cooking pot and the kindling and with the, red, the, the, the hot torch in and amongst the sheaves? Well, it ignites. It ignites the kindling. It ignites the sheaves. And all this to say, what happens to the nations who choose to oppose God and oppose God's people? They kind of go poof. That's kind of what it's saying. They kind of go poof. Alternatively, though, what happens for God's people? What is the result of God's people sticking with God? Zechariah says God will save them. God will uh, protect them from his enemies and their enemies. He will keep them safe. In fact, it says that God will make the feeblest and the weakest amongst his people, the weakest link, if you will, the weakest amongst God's people, well, they will be as strong as the warrior king, King David, and that he was a very, very strong individual and leader. And that will be the weakest link, okay? And it only gets stronger from there. Here's the point. The point is, who wins in this great cosmic battle between God and his people on one side and the enemies of God on the other side? Who wins every time? God and his people win every time. Verse 9 says that on that day, God will destroy all the nations that come up against Jerusalem that come up against God. Now, what? how do we get anything relevant for our lives today? Here, This was written 2,500 years ago. Um, what do we glean from this? Um, well, let me try to break this down a little bit, just to sort of eliminate some mystery. Uh, there's some question marks about what Zechariah is referring to, but I want to suggest to you that I believe that this is a three-pronged prophecy from God to us today. In other words, what God is describing here may happen or has happened at three different times 
uh, in human history. Are you still with me somewhat? Hang in there as I try to explain this. I broke this down a bit. In your notes, uh, you can refer to it there as well. Zechariah 12 could be a three-pronged prophecy about, firstly, the Maccabean Revolt. This already occurred in and around 167 to 160 B.C. And this revolt uh, is not referred to specifically in Scripture, uh, but in 166 B.C., this man, Maccabeus, he led a Jewish army to victory uh, over the Greeks and the Hellenistic uh, culture. Uh, they were trying to replace uh, Jewish worship with Greek worship. So let's get the Greek gods in the temple of God instead of the one God and the one true God of the Bible. And so uh, Maccabeus led his army to defeat the Greeks and, and basically kick them out of Jerusalem. And they enter Jerusalem triumphantly as God's people again, and they restore traditional biblical worship at the temple of the Lord. It was really a supernatural victory, just a very few number of them that defeated the Greeks at that time. So this could be what God is referring to is going to happen and has happened already uh, in human history. Secondly, this prophecy is also definitely speaking about Christ defeating his enemies through the cross. All right, we see this in Acts 4, 24 to 28. Uh, in that passage in Acts chapter 4, uh, the, the Jerusalem church at that time clearly saw that the crucifixion of Jesus happened. Why? It's because the kings of the earth, such as Rome, that was the major superpower at the time, and then King Herod, and then you had the religious teachers who were wrong-headed. They, they thought they were all about God, but they weren't. And they set themselves up against who? They set themselves up and gather against Jesus to oppose the anointed one of God, the Lord Jesus, by crucifying him. And the irony to that is in their attempt to eradicate and destroy Jesus, well, Jesus ends up defeating them through the cross, through his resurrection three days later. And so that's what it's speaking to here. That's what Zechariah is referring to. And also, thirdly, Zechariah's prophecy is clearly speaking about the final battle. So there's different angles to the fulfillment of this prophecy, the final battle at the end of time. This is otherwise known as Armageddon, when God will, will judge all the nations of the earth who oppose him. Revelation chapter 16, it talks about how the kings of all the world will, will gather to do battle against God. Where, where is this going to happen? Armageddon. And if you look at verse 11, we're going to get technical here, chapter 12, verse 11, uh, Zechariah mentions the plain of Megiddo, Armageddon is a Hebrew word, which means Mount Megiddo. Long story short, before I get caught in the weeds there, this is why Bible scholars believe that Zechariah is giving us a prophetic sort of hat tip, a, a nod to um, Armageddon. And Armageddon lit literally is a place uh, 100 kilometers north of Jerusalem on a plain where it seems uh, the ultimate defeat of the enemies of God will occur at the end of human history. All right, are you still with me? Okay. How does any of this apply to our lives today? How does this impact my life today, you might be asking. Well, let's gonna look, we're now going to look at a couple of points. The first point in your notes, if you're following along, uh, and I'll try to make the connection here. In the end, the Lord will judge the nations that oppose him and alternatively save and give strength to his people. He's going to judge the nations that oppose him and also then save and give strength to his own people. What I'm trying to say is, Think of yourself. I don't want you to find yourself on the wrong team when it's all over. Don't find yourself on the wrong team 
when it's all over. I'm sure you've heard the phrase, uh, you're on the wrong side of history. All right, wrong side of history. Don't find yourself on the wrong side of history. Have you heard this in our culture over the last several years? And I got to say, I don't like the phrase. I don't like the phrase. Yes, uh, some terrible things have happened in our culture, and there's some bad things in our culture and our traditional culture that have occurred in the past. But you know, to make the assumption that everything that's old or everything that's happened in the past is terrible, uh, to assume that you know our modern minds today are enlightened, and we, as the modern ones, have all the answers. Anything older is always terrible. Well, I would suggest if that's our viewpoint, that's chronological snobbery. You know, we're kind of being snobs about being modern. It's not good. So I want to adjust the phrase if I can. I want to adjust the phrase wrong side of history a little bit. And here it is. I just want to suggest, you know, don't find yourself on the wrong side of God. That's the more important thing. Don't find yourself on the wrong side of God. Like the enemies of God in the time of Maccabeus, uh, to the enemies of God who oppose Jesus at the cross and they, they try to kill God and eradicate God, or like the future enemies of God who will insanely try to war against God at the time of Armageddon, you know, don't find yourself on the wrong team, okay? Don't find yourself on the wrong side of God. It's not a place you want to be. You will never win. There's no upside to opposing God, to opposing Christ. We know how it all ends. We know how it ends. Therefore, live with the end in mind. Have you heard that phrase before? Live with the end in mind. We have the huge advantage of knowing how human history is going to end. That is very helpful. All right? Reverse engineer your life in such a way knowing that God is going to win, that His way is the best way. There's no point in opposing Him whatsoever. It's possible you may have been living your life in such a way where you're opposing God, you're sort of resisting God's ways, resisting the gospel, resisting Christ, resisting the church, um, resisting coming home to God, and you're just like, you know, you know, I don't want that. I don't want that. And I'm hoping that instead of being in that place of resistance, that you will get to the point where you're saying, I just don't want to fight God anymore. I don't want to fight God anymore. And I'm just suggesting to you, come home. It's, it's best to come home. Come home to the God who made you. Come home to the God who will win in the end. Reverse engineer your life in such a way, knowing that God's way, that he wins, and get on, get on his team. Come home to the one who loves you more than any other and who has a glorious future planned for you that is going to be truly breathtaking. Come home. Let's transition. I want to now move to looking at the last part of chapter 12 here. Zechariah talks about how God's going to sort of pour out on Jerusalem two things. He's going to pour out... Uh, a spirit of grace, which refers to probably the Holy Spirit of God. And also he's going to pour out pleas for mercy. So we basically have God pouring out grace and mercy on Jerusalem, on the people of God. And these are good things, by the way. Later in the New Testament, it becomes clear uh, how that these precious gifts from God of grace and mercy come to God's people. They come to us via, Zechariah says, the pierced one, the pierced one. Who was pierced at Calvary by the enemies of God? Jesus Christ. This was 500 years before Jesus was crucified. Yet again, the Bible is a prophetic supernatural book. And when Jesus was hanging on that cross, you know what happened? A Roman soldier, just to make sure Jesus was dead, and I have to be mindful of the children in the room, but a spear was driven into Jesus and into his side and... It then pierced actually his heart uh, on the inside of his body 
and from his heart being pierced by that Roman spear, the scripture says blood and water flowed out of his body, poured out of his body. It's amazing. And on that day that God died, mourning filled the airwaves. This is what Zechariah identifies. And it did. Mourning filled the airwaves on the death on the day that Jesus died. Basically, his disciples and followers were amazed at all the miracles that Jesus did. They, they were sure that this was the Messiah, but now their Messiah was, was dead. And all their hopes and dreams were, were crushed, or so they thought. But mourning filled the airwaves. But three days after the death of Jesus, mourning then led to dancing. Jesus rose up from the dead. Thanks be to God. He defeats his enemies forevermore. And he defeats sin. He defeats Satan as well. And that leads to point number two in your notes as I bring this message to a close. Receive grace and mercy today and every day from the pierced one, Jesus. Receive grace and mercy today and every day from the pierced one, the Lord Jesus. You know, I talked about when Jesus' side was pierced with that Roman spear, uh, blood and water flowed out of the body of Christ. Well, in like manner, um, daily grace and daily mercy flow out from Jesus every day for us if we love, follow, and trust our King. And so if you're new to Christianity, you might be here as a not-yet-Christian, um, I'm just saying to you, come to Jesus. Get on the team that wins in the end. You know, His way is better. You are destined to be with God and in a relationship with Him. And I'm just suggesting the way that you come to God and receive mercy and grace that you need is to repent of your sins, it is to believe and trust in the gospel, and it is to be baptized by your own choice. Let's have a conversation about that after the service or sometime this coming week. I want to talk to you, a few of you in the, are in the room who are Christians. You would consider yourself a follower of Jesus. And my encouragement to you is simply this. You know, a lot of Christians think receiving grace and mercy is only for the day of conversion, like when you first become a Christian. That's not it at all. We are to receive daily grace, daily mercy from Jesus because we sin. You know, we're still sin. We have remaining sin. And we need His grace and mercy to change us and to cover our sins on an ongoing basis. And so I'm, my admonition and encouragement to you, Christian, is would you, if you're not doing this, rely on the transforming grace and mercy each and every day that comes from the pierced one. Remind yourself of Jesus on that cross where His hands and feet were pierced and His side was pierced to bring about mercy and grace that you and I would need each and every day. Not just on the day of our conversion, but every day of our Christian life because we do battle against the remaining sin in our lives. So do you need grace and mercy today? Would you receive it from the pierced one during our time of taking communion and the Lord's Supper a little later? Let's pray together. Thank you, Jesus, for being pierced for us so that we could receive the necessary grace and mercy that you so freely give to us. We have done nothing to deserve any of these gifts, done nothing to deserve heaven, done nothing to deserve a relationship with you, and yet you took the hit for us. We are so grateful. Help us to live in daily dependence upon your transforming grace and power and mercy. Lord, may we start 2020 with that focus, an opportunity to, to begin the year with a right focus of daily dependence on these precious gifts of grace and mercy that you provide for us. Lord, we approach your table today 
to remember and celebrate you being pierced for us. And may we do so uh, in a sincere and heartfelt, heartfelt way to, today. Through Christ we pray. Amen. So now we're going to respond to God's word in three ways. We're going to uh, worship with a couple more songs a little later. We're going to take up